Pittsburgh, New York, riverreporter.com. And from Wayne Memorial Hospital and Wayne Memorial Health System, more than 200 healthcare providers seeking service. This is a randomized weekly test of WJFF's emergency alert system. This is only a test. Good evening once again. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets. This program is produced by Vets for Vets, and I'm your host, as always, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg, United States Air Force, 1968 to 1972. Our mission is simple, to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to our veterans, our active service members, and, of course, their families. Our program tonight features two outstanding conversations, as always, we hope, and we hope you'll enjoy them. Charles Hine is a Vietnam veteran who, like so many other young men and women, put their American dream on hold when Uncle Sam came to call, serving his country as a medic with the 101st Airborne. Frank Siller is the CEO and chairman of the foundation named after his brother, Stephen. Today, the Stephen Siller Tunnels to Towers Foundation is focused on providing and securing homes for first responders, veterans, and their families. But first, however, let's have a little bit of the important dates in March. March is Military Caregivers Month. It's also Women's History Month. The Naval Reserve birthday was March the 3rd. Hug a GI Day was March the 4th. Mardi Gras was March the 5th. And Daylight Savings Time began on the 10th. K-9 Veterans Day is March the 13th. American Legion birthday, March the 15th. And St. Patrick's Day is March the 17th. Medal of Honor Day is the 25th, and National Vietnam Veterans Day is March the 29th. Tonight we feature a conversation with a Vietnam vet, and while some of what he'll tell you is familiar, each man or woman's experience is unique. And going forward, I would like to request, like to make a plea, that we make veteran interviews a normal part of every program, lest we forget the true cost of war. If you or someone you know would like to share their experience and be part of our program, please email me at vets at wjffradio.org. So the year was 1966, and the Vietnam War was in full swing, and here at home, 1,001, rather, different points of view were fighting to change U.S. culture for better as they saw it. Such was the case when Charles Doc Hine received an invitation from the Department of Defense for an all-expense-paid tour of Vietnam as he served as a medic with the 101st Airborne. We're speaking with uh, Chuck Hine, who is a Vietnam veteran and a medic. And Chuck, thanks for taking the time to share your experience with our audience. Glad to be here, Doug. Thank you. So, uh, again, when and where did you serve? I served uh, from 1966 and then until 1968 in the Army. And I most of that time uh, was in Vietnam uh, in the war theater as a combat medic. And were you drafted or did you enlist? I was drafted. Um, I was among the early drafting system, which is uh, your local draft board has to fulfill a certain obligation of finding um, uh, people to serve. And I got my draft notice and 
everyone that went that day to the draft board to see if we were actually going to go in or not, we ended up going in. And where were you living at? Where were you living at the time? Um, in Rochester, New York, a little town south of that, Avon. I was working for Xerox Corporation. I was a electronics engineer that was working on, um, as a matter of fact, the first fax machine at that time. Well, wow, that's uh, old technology now. Old technology, <laughs> right? You are. But it it worked for a long time, so you'd done good. Well. It's interesting enough, uh, I was not able to um, go back to that job, even though they kept it open for me. Um, but coming out of uh, Vietnam, I had a lot of uh, issues that uh, just wouldn't allow me to get back into uh, the swing of things. What was the prevailing attitude of your family and friends and folks in the area where you lived at that time regarding Vietnam? Well, to tell you the truth, it really wasn't up on the radar much in my community. Um, we're a pretty rural, rural community and farming community, and there were much more important things uh, that occupied people's minds, uh, obviously uh, their livelihood. And the war in Vietnam was not quite up there as far as even being a part of the conversation. Okay, there, were, there must have been a number of other young folks from the community that got caught up in the war as well? Uh, yes, there were. Um, I knew a couple of guys in, from my school that were um, that served. Uh... Okay, given the uh, atmosphere in the country, how did you feel about going to Vietnam? I, I don't recall... Um, even thinking about that when I got my draft notice or when I went into to uh, act, when I got actually in the service and started training um, it really came to light though when I uh, when I got into basic take the training and that was because the, my two drill instructors had just gotten back from Vietnam serving there for a year and they were very um, forthcoming with what might and very well be in store for us new uh, recruits. And that sort of uh, put it on the front burner for me. Um, but it wasn't until then, to tell you the truth. Uh, did you pick the branch of service or the uh, the actual specialty that you ended up doing, or... Was it picked for you? Um, no, I pretty much let the dice roll their own way. Um, drafted, they put me into basic training in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I was you know I was going through basic training as an infantryman, and from there I was actually designated to become uh, or to go through advanced training in the medical field. Um, so I just went ahead with that. Um, we had our options that we could pick, but as a draftee, I guess you don't really get what you asked for. I ended up going to med school at Fort Sam Houston, and it was only going through that training that I realized that that was not the place for me, or at least I didn't think so, and I tried to escape that um, upon graduation. I see that... Um you were in the Army, and then uh, some of your family was in the Navy, right? Uh, yeah, my whole family was in the Navy. Well, everybody in my family that was in the service was a Navy uh, person. I, I had two uncles in World War II, uh, and my older brother served in the Philippines after the war. And uh, my grandfather built ships in Washington and the shipyard. You know, it was just... I. Um, I was pretty much on target to go to college, get the education, get a job that was going to pay well and work my way up uh, and do the, uh, the normal American dream thing. And so that was always in my mind. And so everything I did was based on that instead of maybe what was in front of me. 
So I continued to just think that I wanted to put two years in and, and get out and then do that. Um, I noticed in your uh, discussion and, and the notes that you sent me that you had a particular problem with the medical field. I think I had the same problem when uh, I get a little bit of uh, anxiety when somebody wanted to stick me with something or take some blood. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, in high school, I I never made it back to the classroom after getting our shots. I would I would pass out in the hallway or. I remember one time making it to my seat before I passed out and fell on the floor. But And I also fainted the sight of blood. And that was a big problem with learning how to do IVs and do shots in the training. And I was running into trouble getting a partner because every time I'd give an IV, I would end up fainting. And every time I got an IV, I'd end up fainting. And it was a pretty, uh, pretty sad story. So your your partners were getting tired of picking you up, huh? <laughs> yeah, and they, they didn't want me to be messing around with them either. <laughs> if I'm going to be fainting in the middle of it, so, but oddly enough, I did get through that. And it's it's kind of interesting that in all my days serving in combat as a medic, in the midst of a lot of blood. I never fainted once, never had the urge, never had even a bit of issue with that. And uh, I don't know quite why, because after returning a few years later, I had an incident with my dog doing a surgery on him, and I ended up fainting, and my wife caught me before I really messed myself up. So it's still with me, and my daughter has the same thing, but during Vietnam, it did not bother me. So I see you also uh, tested for helicopters. Uh, yes, I did. It was one of my ways of not getting into um, the work that I thought I was going to end up. I was working in a hospital. That was all my training was all about hospital care in Fort Sam. And I just didn't like it. I just really didn't like it. And I wanted to do something else. And I tried to do that, but... In the bottom line, before I signed off, it was commit myself to eight years of obligation. And uh, that went against my initial keeping it minimized to two years. So I didn't do that. But I did end up hooking up with some guys that were going to jump school. And I thought that might be something that would change my trajectory. So I went to Fort Sam Houston and learned how to jump out of planes. It was Fort Benning, Georgia. I'm sorry. That's okay. How did you like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane? I loved it. Okay. <laughs> I loved every bit of that. All the running that we had to do, we had to run everywhere. To lunch, and then you had 10 minutes, and then you had to run back to do your next gig, and it was just a constant uh, heavy training to get you to actually jump out of that plane without thinking about it. It was great. Every one of my jumps was just like I'm sorry I didn't get to do more than what I did. So you got done with jump school, and then um, you were going to be deployed. So where did where did you go then? Well, I got my orders, and uh, I knew after being in jump school for a little while that, that um, <clears throat> it looked like I actually sealed my fate as far as ending up going to Vietnam um, because they were short of medics particularly airborne medics, and I knew that that's where I was going to head, and sure enough, when I got done training, that's where I got my orders came for uh, to uh, ship off to Vietnam. And once you got in country, uh, what type of unit were you attached to? First getting in country, you had to go to what was called a repo place, and that was where they just... Um, you stayed for a couple, three days until your orders came down for where you were going to go. And I got assigned to the 101st Airborne. So once I got there, I caught a plane and, and got to the unit and spent the night there. And the next morning, I got my orders or got my equipment and was out into the field. They threw an aid bag at me and got my 
rifle and all the ammunition and supplies, and I ended up going out into the field, which is what we did the entire time I was there. We just did uh, search and destroy missions, and it's, um, it was a hard uh, reality to get out and do something that you had no knowledge whatsoever about as far as I, I didn't get any training in how to deal with combat wounds, all that sort of thing. And the aid bag was full of medicine that I had no idea what was for, and it was it was a real um, it just was fearful. I mean, I just couldn't believe that I couldn't do the job that I was supposed to be doing. And my luck was that I was underneath a uh, what we call a senior aid man, and and he really jumped on and and taught me a lot of stuff. That was a great thing because usually the first person, the newcomer into the unit, they don't want much to do with you because they feel that you you end up, uh, you're either going to get shot or wounded in the first couple of weeks, and they don't want to be around you. So um, this guy was the exception, and if it wasn't for him, uh, I don't think I would have survived Vietnam at all. So take us through a typical day what a typical day might be like for a medic in country attached to the 101st Airborne? Well, like I say, we were in the jungle all the time, and we did search and destroy missions, which is nothing more than just maneuvering through uh, the platoon-sized uh, unit. We usually moved in unison with our other platoons of a company. So there was 40... 40 men to a platoon and four platoons, and we were never very far within a day's hike of each other. And um, we would uh, just get up in the morning and pack up and head, hit the trail or just make our way through the jungle. And at the end of the day, if nothing happened or we didn't have any contact, we would just set up a little perimeter, just the 40 of us, uh, four squads would take, you know, different sections of the perimeter, and myself and the lieutenant, who was the platoon lieutenant, and his RTO would be in the center, and the RTO and I would do a radio call all night long. We'd take two-hour shifts, and in the morning, we'd get up and do it again, and, you know, the, it would just be like that until we actually made contact, and... That happened pretty regular and in all kinds of ways. So I guess uh, that uh, lends a new definition to on-the-job training. And, uh, yes, it does. Um, I wasn't the only one that had issues with not uh, really knowing the lay of the land. Uh, you can train all you want, and most of the training I got in basic was all about how you would have trained for World War II. And if it wasn't for my drill sergeants who knew what people needed to know, um, they at least instilled in me that it was going to be different. And uh, I, I, um, I owe everything to my senior aid man who stuck by me and answered all my questions and helped me through and gave me a lot of advice on how to navigate the lay of the land. And um, I'll be forever thankful to him. So was there anything that you did for uh, good luck? I guess the closest thing I got to, to even thinking about it was watching other people, what they did. And I, I really didn't do that. I I don't know why. Um, I just looked at it as this is where I am and this is what I'm doing, and I need to, I need to just do what I am there to do. And I got to understand that luck wasn't something that you could control. When you witness, you know what happens to some people, and doesn't happen to others, including myself. I mean, you just can't. You can't imagine how many times you know that you were a hair away from getting 
shot or dead. And it, it just, it's just one of those things that you, you had to come to grips with. And it, it takes a while, and um, I know the moment that that happened for me. Is there one event in particular that stands out in your mind? Well, I guess just furthering that whole notion of uh, luck and um, how you think you're going to make it through. And the the guy who trained me and, and made it work for me, um, uh, he was very close to leaving. He was getting ready to... He rose out and um, ended up at a period of time when I was I was actually in the hospital because of a illness from a tick bite and I got back to the aid station from that and found out that he had been killed um, the day before and that's that's something I will the feeling that I went through the whole loss and the and the notion that I wasn't there to help him and all of that was just a tremendous guilt and and I just it and it left me wondering how I was gonna make it. You know, if, if this guy who I thought was just if he was if he couldn't make it then there was no chance that I was ever gonna make it. And so it it was a hard uh, lesson, and going back out uh, again was it was an unknown as to how I was going to filter that out. And luckily, um, you know, I used what he had taught me, and and I I just kept going. And I I believe in luck because it it it's really it's it, it's luck what we call luck. You just you just can't figure you can figure things out a little bit, but you really if you're gonna do your job you have to get up and do things when you would not do it ordinarily. So it's um um benchmark when you can learn to sow that fear you have for your own life to do your job and if it happens, it happens. And and that's what you have to do. To kind of conclude our talk today, um, how did your time in the military, specifically your time in combat, change your life or affect your life? Well, it had a tremendous impact on my life. Um, as I said earlier, that it it uh, took me a while to reintegrate back into society once I got back because everything was turned upside down for me. Um, it was during the period of uh, mass shopping, I remember. Uh, I derose out of uh, Oakland, California and got to go through the first huge shopping mall. And it was so wrong in my head that all of this was taking place when I knew my guys were still flogging in the mud and jungle in Vietnam. And I I just, those two things just did not meld together. And so I ended up um, heading to the mountains and just staying away from people and, and not reintegrating and trying to figure out what really happened to me. And I'm still today figuring it all out. Because it's not something that leaves you; it stays with you, and you have to look at the positive things. I found out anyway, and tell you the truth, uh, there are things that I'm thankful for, and one of them is it opened my eyes to a world that I was sheltered from. I mean, I grew up in a rural white community, and you know, so I didn't meet up with any ethnically different people until I got in the service. And the black guys in my unit, man, they saved my life so many times, and they were right on spot. And it was just like they were people just like everybody, and I didn't 
you know, it was like that's what I knew. And then to come back and to learn about all the dissension and all the racist stuff that was going on uh, in this country that I knew nothing about. And it, it made me think and made me question and it made me want to know. And I, so that's, that I looked at as a positive. Uh, and it also made me realize that I needed to be a part of this country to make it work. In particular, um, what I look at as democracy and the whole notion that it can't exist without the people um, being a part of that. And that's, um, that's I think, where we are today, actually. It's <laughs> trying to figure that out still. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Chuck, uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and uh, recounting some of these very personal experiences and, and agreeing to share them with us and, and our audience. And I really well, thank appreciate you, Doug, for doing, uh, doing this work because voices need to be out there. Uh, I think there's a lot of voices that have never been heard and that should be heard uh, related to all these issues, in particular war and peace. Uh, so I know that um, there's a lot of generals who have spoken up about war, and uh, personally, I think that we can do without war, and we should be working towards that end. Well, they they say that the warrior will be the first one to say, don't go to war. You got that right. Yep. Okay, Chuck, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Okay, Doug. Will take, do. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. And this is WJFF Jeffersonville, and you're listening to Let's Talk Best. And I'm your host, Doug Sandberg. And now it's time for a little bit of news. As we told you on the last program, and we'll tell you repeatedly, the Sullivan County Veterans Coalition, in partnership with the Sullivan County Chamber of Commerce, had announced that the American Veterans Traveling Tribute Wall is coming to our area this year. The wall will be displayed at Rock Hill Fire Department's Park September 11th through the 14th. This display is an 80% replica of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. The assembled display is 360 feet long and 8 foot tall at its apex, which is a flag display flown over the wall. The organizers are, of course, seeking donations, which are tax-deductible, sponsorships and volunteers to help set up, take down, and escort visitors needing assistance. Checks may be made payable to SCVC Wall Fund, P.O. Box 1527, Monticello, New York, 12701. For more information, you may contract, contact rather Rocky Ortega, at 845-665-3171 or rqortega at yahoo.com or Howard Goldsmith at 845-791-1030. That's goldsmithhow at yahoo.com. Being this is Women's History Month, the story Corey Fisher spent her Army career caring for wounded troops both as a flight medic in the Iraqi War and Walter Reed Army Hospital. So she looked forward to one of the most celebrated benefits of military service, health care for life from the Department of Veterans Affairs, and then she walked through the door of the VA Medical Center in Temple, Texas. You felt like you're a piece of meat, said Miss Foster, who is a retired sergeant, standing in line at the registration desk I was getting comments from male patients behind me, looking me up and down. It was a major source of discomfort. The treatment was the same at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where Miss Foster moved after living at Texas. At that point, she gave up and opted for her husband's insurance outside the department. They need to make the facilities not feel like old soldiers' homes, said Miss Foster. 
An entrenched sexist culture at many veterans' hospitals driving away female veterans and lags behind the gains that women have made in the military in recent years, veterans and lawmakers in both parties say. Although Veterans Department of Veterans Affairs has scrambled to adjust to the rising population of female veterans and has made some progress, including hiring more women's health care providers, fixing basic, basic privacy problems in exam rooms, and expanding service to women in rural areas, sexual harassment at the department facilities remains a major problem. Women say it's galling to have such a demeaning atmosphere, especially when roughly 30% of female veterans who have reported being harassed or assaulted while serving in the military. That number includes Senator Martha McSally, a Republican of Arizona, who spoke at a congressional hearing last week about being raped by a superior officer while serving in the Air Force. Changing that culture has been an ongoing, overwhelming goal, said Dr. Patricia Hayes, the chief consultant for women's health services at the VA. We want women veterans to feel respected, safe, and secure. At a recent hearing, the Veterans Agency officials at Capitol Hill, Representative John Carter, Republican of Texas, described the treatment of female constituents trying to obtain VA health care. Quote, it's like a construction site, close quote. Ms. Carter said the same medical center in Texas that Ms. Foster had used and noted the Women's Trauma Recovery Center within it was removed last year to a female-only facility in Waco so that women who said that they fear for their safety could receive treatment without facing harassment. Representative Will Hurd, Republican of Texas, was visually frustrated as he described women abandoning the center in his district because of harassment. This is the biggest concern I hear from the female veteran, he said. With the number of women veterans using the health care facilities of the VA is tripled since 2000, from 159,810 to about half a million. They still make up only 8% of all users of the health care at the VA, and officials expect the number will increase. Two million women are in, are in the American veteran population, or about 10%, and yet they make up 16% of the active duty force. I believe we will have a tsunami wave of women vets coming in for treatment, said Dr. Hayes from Veterans Affairs. In the last two years, following calls from almost 4 million veterans across the U.S., the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act has passed, and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs has been replaced, and the Mission Act was signed to enable veterans to have their choice in health care, all happening in a bipartisan support and intended to better the lives of former service members. But not so fast. The irony is that while the President and the Congress are committed to accomplishing this new vision for veterans, a practical reality is that the VA staff members have not embraced the changes. VA staff members uh, seem to be reticent to change that affords veterans their choice of health care. Dr. Roger Stone, head of the Veterans Health Administration, stated that 90% of the veterans choose to stay with the VA rather than utilize community care. However, it is not choice when to date the only consistency in response from the VA has been no, can't, or won't. Congress has charged the VA to set up a task force to get to the bottom of this and correct it. Stephen Siller, one of America's bravest, had just finished up his shift in Brooklyn when our country came under attack on 9-11-2001. Stephen returned to his firehouse, retrieved his turnout gear, and headed for lower Manhattan, thinking only of his commitment to serve. With traffic stalled, he hiked, ran, and jogged several miles through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel to the Twin Towers, directly into harm's way. 
never to return. His brother Frank leads a foundation that bears Stephen's name. We're speaking with Frank Siller, who's chairman and CEO of the Stephen Siller Tunnels to Towers Foundation. Hey, Doug, thank you very much for having me on. Well, thank you for taking the time. I know you guys are really busy. So for those who may not be familiar with Tunnels to Towers, could you give us a thumbnail sketch of how and when and why the organization was established? Sure. So on September 11, 2001, my brother, New York City firefighter, was just uh, finished his night tour in Squad 1 in Brooklyn, and he was on his way home, heard on his radio scanner uh, that the towers were hit, so he turned around, went back to his firehouse, got his gear, drove to the mouth of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, where it was closed for security reasons, and strapped 60 pounds of gear to his back and ran through that tunnel to the towers where he gave up his life while saving others. Now, if you uh, you know that tunnel is almost two miles long, and then going up West Street, and it uh, was quite a heroic uh, journey that he took. And we were so proud of him as a family that we started a foundation called the Stephen Silla Tunnels to Towers Foundation, where every year we have a run in New York City in the September, always the last Sunday in September, where we follow Stephen's heroic footsteps. But we've been doing many things over the last seventeen plus years. So today, what is your main mission? Well, so this is, uh, we make sure that we take care of those who die in the line of duty. Gold Star families, fallen first responder families, and then also catastrophically injured service members. And both in the Gold Star families and the fallen first responders, you have to have young children left behind. What we're doing there is we're giving them or building them mortgage-free homes. So you take that, that burden off the family of knowing where they're going to live. You know, they just lost their, their loved one, their hero. And one of the things that they're always concerned about, and been doing this for the amount of years that I've been doing it, is where are we going to live? So you've done mainly projects, I believe, mainly in New York State. How, how many projects have you done? And are they all new homes? Or are they retrofits or what? So 90, 95% of homes, um, and we just don't do them in, in, uh, in New York. We have quite a few that we have done in New York, but we've done them all over the United States. We've done over 100 mortgage-free homes. Many of them are for catastrophically injured service members. Uh, they're specially designed, uh, adapted smart homes for the individual injuries that these great heroes have. Many of them are triple, quadruple amputees, quadriplegics those who paid the biggest price, you know, protecting our country. So those homes are very, you know, they're more expensive to build. And then the Gold Star family, they're, you know, regular homes that we build or pay off their, their mortgages, plus with the uh, fallen first responders. So with heroes in America, those who protect our country and those who protect our communities and the families that are left behind. So who is eligible for Tunnel to Towers programs and how are recipients selected? Well, if you're el- you don't want to be eligible, I'll say that first of all. Um, you know, to become eligible, you've paid a big price. Uh, in the for those that we built for the catastrophically injured service members, you'd have to have lost a minimum of two limbs uh, above the knee with other I- traumatic brain injury with it, and other you can imagine other injuries that they have. If you lost two limbs, you know that they qualify uh, to receive a, a mortgage-free home list. Uh, they people hear about us. They know about us because we're all you know. They know that we've been doing this for years. So mentions from their uh, uh, friends that received a home already. A triple amputee that that lives in uh, Tennessee. That you know I, I was serving with them, and you know he he has no home. So a lot of them are through recommendations, and uh, others are you know they just uh, contact us or we hear of them or visit that medical center down in Bethesda. You know, we've been down there many, many times visiting these great heroes. Your website, a lot of noteworthy partner companies. Um, we don't have probably time to list them all, but could you take one or two as an example and explain how you partner with them? How do they help you? Well, I'll give you uh, our largest is is, is Home Depot. They're, they help us not only with uh, financial assistance, money, cash, because you need cash. We buy the land, a lot of 
expenses, to say the least, to build a house, but they also help us with materials for each one of these homes. So they've been Home Depot. I could say anybody, if you're thinking of go buying something for, for your home or to do renovation, buy Home Depot because they've been, they are unbelievable how much they do for, uh, for veterans. The GMC named this National Foundation of Choice. Uh, they do uh, so many unbelievable fundraisers for the course of the year. Many of the dealerships are involved. They, they raise, uh, you know, money for us. Um, I own a GMC vehicle because of it. I went and bought a, a beautiful Yukon uh, because um, I can't believe what they've done for us. They, and also, you know, uh, General Motors have, have been over 100 years that partner with us. And without them, we can't build these houses. And without everyday Americans, to uh, be quite frank with you, we have an unbelievable campaign going now where we're asking all Americans to donate $11 a month. We figure most people can afford to donate $11 a month, you know, for millions of people to do that. And we, you know, we've been very successful to date. And um, $11, you could change somebody's life, you know, because the old adage in the fire department, many hands makes light work, right? So the same thing as Americans, many Americans donating to this will make this easier to help the the amount. There's over a thousand Gold Star family members that are waiting for these mortgage-free homes, you know, that They've given their lives for their country, and their families are left behind. So there's a lot of work that we have to do at the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Those who are listening for $11 a month, you get somebody else to sign up. You've, you've, you've already uh, did something to help these great heroes. So if we get to a few minutes, I want to make sure that our listeners get a full appreciation for your foundation and all of the things that you do. So I just want to run down your programs I think you partly answered this, but your smart home program? Right, what we talked about for the catastrophically injured service members, right? Over 75 of those homes were built all over the country, and the houses are designed for their individual uh, injuries. And your fallen responder home program? So this is a, so our fallen first responders, for those who remember a Christmas night, there was a in Newman, California, he was shot by an illegal immigrant. And um, he had just taken a picture with his wife before he went to work on Christmas night. And um, so we were the foundation that and was doing a fundraiser to pay off their mortgage. And in 10 days, we raised enough money to pay off their mortgage and actually give them an extra $50,000 towards the education for their son. Um, so we do that all over the country. For those who die in the line of duty or protecting our communities, let it be a firefighter or a police officer, Many police officers are being shot just because they're cops. Um, you know, uh, we're the ones that come to the aid of these families that are left behind. Once again, because knowing that your mortgage is paid for, it relieves a tremendous burden uh, and, and not have to worry about that financial pressure on them. We, many Americans, we, I can't imagine if something like that happened to me, what my wife might have to worry about. Uh, so uh, it is a real relief that any American can can envision uh, that you really help these these uh, these great heroes' families. And I guess the same, or it's kind of similar, the Gold Star Family Home Program. Yep. Uh, so Gold Star is the exact same thing, except that many of them we do build uh, because you know you know if you serve your country, you hop from. Uh, uh, all over the United States, you're never in a, in, in a place for a long period of time. The husband goes overseas or the wife goes overseas protecting our country. Uh, we just had um, one of the families that we're helping now is uh, Shannon Kent's family. She was a she was in, in, in the Navy. She she deciphered codes. She was a, this a superstar. Her superior is called a, a, an unbelievable superstar. She languages. You know, she was serving her country. She just got killed in a, in, in a suicide bombing in, in uh, Syria where she left two kids behind. Also, in, in that blast, uh, Jonathan uh, uh, Farmer, um, he was a Green Beret. He got killed. You know, his wife, Sabrina, was left behind with four children. So those we are paying off their mortgages, but many of them we build the houses because they don't have houses because they, you know, move all over the United States while they are husbandry. So it is that part of the program that is endless. There are thousands. There were 7,000, for those listeners, I'm sure you know this, Doug, but nearly 7,000 men and women in uniform have died protecting 9-11. Many of those 
uh, families, uh, you know, guys were killed, had families with young kids, and you know, these are the families we're trying, uh, we're trying to help here. So we need, you know, once again, $11 a month, $11 a month, it could be a huge, huge uh, assistance to these great families. So for those that don't know how to do it, you go to tunneltotowers.org. Uh, you can't miss it when you go on the website. You know, get signed right up for $11 a month. Remember, my brother was a New York City firefighter that ran through the tunnel to the towers, and that's why we are Tunnel to Towers. Okay, you also have a number of community programs listed, uh, Wings of the Hero Legacy Awards. Well, yeah, well, we do uh, some local stuff. Most certainly, my brother uh, grew up on Staten Island, and so my parents died when he was a young man. He was only 10 years old, but my parents died, and he lived with my brother, Russ, out in Rockville Center. So we do things for local schools. If they lo- uh, have lost a parent or they're, or, or they're orphaned, we help them in a small way with, uh, with some of their, with, with their educational uh, needs on that. But we primarily uh, f- focus on the, uh, those who were first responders that died in, in, in the line of duty. So we, we do uh, a lot of uh, good work. Uh, but we can't do it without the support of our great Americans who are the most generous people in the world. There's nothing like Americans. And New Yorkers are, are phenomenal. Um, you know, you know, we just gave a house out in Melville, uh, Long Island to Chris Levy, Corporal Chris Levy a couple months ago. He was a double amputee with other injuries and has almost lost his right arm. Um, and he had other injuries besides. You know, we raised that money because of the, you know, the goodness and the kindness of, of New Yorkers. New Yorkers are phenomenal. There's a, a couple of more listings in these in these few items under community programs. I don't know if they're the same thing. Stevens House of the New York Foundling, and the last one is Stevens House, and the rest of it I can't pronounce. It's an orphanage. Yeah, it, it's an orphanage uh, in Haiti, and the other one's an orphanage. Uh, was started. The New York Foundling started as an orphanage. Uh, 100 years ago, and Stephen was often so when we first started this foundation, we were, we were really supporting a lot of orphans and stuff, um, you know, even though we raised Stephen um, because he had six older, much older siblings, so we were able to be there for him. Uh, a lot of other families, uh, other kids that are orphaned don't have that, so we started out doing that. We did rebuild an orphanage in Haiti, and we built one here. In, uh, on Staten Island, uh, New York, with the New York Foundling, and you know they do they do all the uh, you can look up the work they do. But we you know so we were involved in that very early on. We're very proud of that work. Uh, but most of ninety nine percent of our focus now is uh, for our uh, Gold Star families, for our fall dying the line of duty in both instances, and those who are catastrophically injured serving our country. And I see that you're still, says, working with the relief for Superstorm Sandy. Well, yeah, well, you know, when Sandy happened here, you know, we're, we're a pretty uh, mobile uh, organization. I have firefighters, thousands of firefighters that volunteer their services uh, for us all the time. The day the New York City run, we have 3,000 volunteers. We have 25,000 people that run through that tunnel in honor of Stephen and all those who perished uh, on 9-11. So we had a great uh, volunteer base, and when Sandy hit, we knew that we should do something for our local community. And we were able to uh, raise $12 million uh, in cash, but we delivered uh, $50 million worth of service. Unlike you usually hear people raise $50 million and give you $12 million in service. We do the opposite because we had over 1 million man-hours volunteered skilled labor, uh, not only firefighters but Mennonites, uh, Southern Baptists, you know, came from all over the country, and we set up a uh, war board machine. We were like, uh, we had uh, houses set up for everybody to go to every day. We had Home Depot as a great partner. We had the the materials in each house. We gutted them out. We trained people how to uh, muck out houses and how to... uh, um, you know, we it was incredible if you if you saw what we did. So we took that twelve million dollars and made it uh, deliver fifty million dollars worth of uh, work to our community. So we were very very proud of that. We don't really are we're not in a disaster business, but being it happened in our backyard, if we didn't do that, there would have been something wrong with us. What is the uh, footsteps to the future endowment? 
Well, we want to make sure that when, uh, you know, as we're getting older, so siblings are getting older, we want to make sure this foundation's around for a long time. So we're putting money on the side, um, and uh, so we have a gala every year, and we put a small percentage on the side uh, every year so that, uh, that you know, we ensure that this good work will go on for, you know, we hope forever. I see... Um a label on your website, National Run, Walk, and Climb Series. What's that all about? Well, we have, uh, this year we're going to have about 70 runs all around the country. Um, We do them in different cities. Uh, It emulates the New York City Run K. Once again, we will make sure people don't forget the sacrifice that was made on 9-11, and the sacrifice has been made ever since. So we're very proud that we have 70 events around the country. We're very busy as a foundation. As you can read our uh, website, you can imagine the amount of effort that goes into putting a run in your own backyard, so try it around 70 uh, different cities. And then uh, think of this, you know, try to build a house. Uh, it's not easy. Well, we build them all over the United States, and we are really in charge of the build. So we're very proud of the work we're doing, and one of the things that we are so proud of is that over 93 cents of every dollar goes to these programs that we are doing. We have less than 3% administrative costs. It's unheard of in the not-for-profit business what we, uh, what we do, and the reason why is because this is about my brother's image. His legacy will be one that we make sure is held in the highest esteem and that we will always make sure that we do are fiscally sound and fiscally responsible and that we always take care of every donor's uh, donation and make sure it goes to where they want it to go. Yeah, I see you have a mobile exhibit called Never Forget 9-11. Right. So once again, you know, just like we have the runs all over the country, we feel it's very important that people don't forget this mobile exhibit is a 53-foot tractor-trailer it's uh, manned by uh, by New York City firefighters. They go around the country. It opens up to eleven uh, eleven hundred square foot exhibit. We have artifacts from Ground Zero in there. They take you through the firefighters take you through a tour in different in different cities. We've had uh, nearly uh, I, um, I could be mistaken, but I think it's about a half a million people so far have gone through uh, this the exhibit uh, that we've had around the country. So, uh, once again, we don't want people to forget what happened on 9-11 and, and, like I said before, what's the sacrifice that's been made ever since. Now, how does one arrange to have that exhibit in their area? Well, you can go online, you know, tunneltotowers.org, and if you donate $11 a month, then you can click on to, uh, you don't have to donate $11 a month to find this out, but being you asked me the question. I'm still trying to get people to donate that $11 so we can continue doing the great work that we do. But you'll see right there the mobile exhibit. There's an information button you can hit. You can contact us, and you can request it um, to go to your school, uh, you know, to your, you know, like I said, it goes all over the United States. So we have people that have it there for fairs, for, you know, for school fairs. Uh, we bring it to colleges and, um, you know, it's 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 incredible, and you hear the stories of nine eleven that they give them from firefighters that were there and police officers that were there that day. Is there is there any charge to bring that in? Uh, yes, there is a charge because um, once again, um, albeit it is is not a fundraiser by any means, we don't use it as a fundraiser. Uh, we just want it not to cost the foundation money, so we do charge. A you know a local municipality if they ha- you know uh, hire it you know just to cover the expenses uh, when we when we bring it in sometimes we do bring it in for for free uh, to a uh, to a location but we uh, just want to make sure that the the, the truck is uh, maintained and that we can keep it on on the road it does not raise money by any means but it does raise a lot of awareness and especially young kids that don't even know what happened. You got you got 15 year olds that you know they don't know what happened on 9/11. You got 10 year olds that most certainly don't know what happened on on 9/11. So uh, this way here we it's a, it's really used as a teaching mechanism. So in closing, Frank, um, 
I, I heard somewhere that you have a, a, a program that you're looking for $11 a month. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention it enough, did I? So, uh, yes, so, you know, once again, and I thank you for asking that, Doug, because it is so important that we are able to do the work that we do, and we cannot do it without the generosity and the kindness of Americans. So $11 a month, you know, you just go to tunneltotowers.org. You can't miss it. It's front and center. You sign up for $11 a month. But we're not only asking you to do that. We're asking you to tell a friend, uh, maybe even 11 friends, uh, to do it. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure over the years going forward that we'll be able to have enough people uh, to do this where we can, you know, instead of doing maybe this year I'm going to do build 15 smart homes, pay off, another 25 mortgages, so maybe 40 uh, mortgages this year, and homes, uh, you know, maybe we can do 140, you know, a year. And I do believe that's uh, obtainable if people uh, sign up for this $11 a month. There's over 100 firefighters that die a year in the line of duty. There's 140 police officers that die in the line of duty. Over half of them have young children. So there'd be over a hundred houses a year alone just for fallen first responders. And I told you there's thousands of Gold Star families that are waiting, that died, that have given their lives, and their families have been uh, have not been taken care of. The government doesn't take care of them, that's for sure. So without this eleven dollars a month, we can't do these uh, great things for these great heroes uh, and their families that were left behind. So once again, tunneltotowers.org. Aside from the uh, website uh, phone numbers? 718-987-1931. That's the Tunnel to Towers phone number. You can go 1-844-BRAVEST. Either one of those numbers you can donate to. Um, if you want to make it easy, just go to our website, tunneltotowers.org, for the, once again, for the $11 a month. Or you could do more. A lot of people do more. So we do appreciate it, Doug. I can't thank you enough. Any of your listeners know everything about us now. You, you, they got a pretty in-depth look at what we do, and they should be proud to know that we, uh, we do uh, have the highest rating that you could possibly have for Charity Navigator. So rest assured that their their donation will be put to the purpose that it's supposed to go. So well, I want to thank, thank you thank again, you. Frank Siller, who's the chairman and CEO of the Towers Foundation, for taking your time today and. Um, I think you'll be seeing some response from us. Doug, thank you, and God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Thank you once again for joining us at Let's Talk Vets on WJFF. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so that we may get them on the air, both in our normal public service announcement segments and on this program. You can reach us at Vets at WJFFradio.org, uh, or you can call us and leave us a voicemail at WJFF Voice Box, 845-431-6500. Until next time, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, wmh.org. This is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello, community radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. The time is 1 minute to 8 o'clock here in Jeffersonville. 40 degrees, mostly cloudy tonight with a low of 30 overnight. Tomorrow, partly sunny, high of 52. We're hitting the 50s, y'all. Thursday night, tomorrow night, mostly cloudy. Showers likely overnight and continuing into Friday, but a high of 56 that day despite the wetness. 
Friday night, chance of showers continuing, and then a slight chance of rain or snow overnight with the lows getting into the 30s. And then Saturday, mostly sunny and Sunday, mostly sunny highs in the 30s, both of those days. Stay tuned right now for me, Bradman, on Neonatal Pulse. Coming up next, for the next two hours, only new music, only music released within the past week. And then at 10 o'clock will be the Big Insomniac Show. So much good stuff on the Wednesday waves here. Stay tuned for all of that on Radio Catskill, 90.5 FM. Support comes from Raptors Tavern, Calico, New York, an intimate gathering place for food, music, and